aren't you blessed getting to see the kids up here learning scripture? Thank, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Rosemary. And uh, thank you. That, uh, this is a part of uh, what it means to be Redemption Church, that we really love these kids and that we're coming alongside you parents to help you as you raise this next generation to honor and fear the Lord. As Jeff said, we'll be in Matthew 2 this morning. Here's the title. It's Jesus, a hiss, a hand, and a sound. And here's where we're going. Uh, Matthew wants us to feel both the peril and the joy of the first worshipers seeking Jesus. Some are sovereignly guided by God to seeking Jesus to truly adore him, but there are others who seek Jesus for sinister purposes. And today, here's really what I want us to walk away with. We need to know that we have a real enemy, that God is sovereignly working, and that our greatest joy is in worshiping Jesus. Before we get to the text, though, I'm curious, and you could just raise your hand, how many of you at some point over the last few weeks, and if it was, you know, July, that's okay too, you weirdos, but uh, how many of you have watched A Christmas Story, the one with Ralphie and the BB gun and the lamp? Anybody watch that one this year? Okay, we got a few of you. Those who are like, no, I never watched that. Okay, well, uh, you're, you're in for a treat. I'm, I'm not going to spoil the whole story for you, but I'll give you just a little bit. Uh, a Christmas Story is one that my family watched over and over again. My dad grew up in New England, and he said it's like somebody stole his childhood and made it into a movie. You know, it was just so, so similar to what it was for him growing up in Massachusetts. But in the story, there's this young boy, Ralphie, and, and he has his heart set on getting a certain present for Christmas. It is a Red Ryder BB gun. Uh, now, now, guys and, and gals, some of you, may, my daughter has a BB gun, but do you know that one? It's the one that you can kind of cock and then, you know, it plinks a little bit. You put all the BBs in the side. I had one growing up and, you know, it, it shoots, I mean, maybe 30 feet. It's not, not all that powerful, but boy, as a little boy, it is so much fun. And he wants it. And of course, the more people he asks about it, whether it's his mom or the Santa at the mall, they all tell him the same thing. Tell him, you'll shoot your eye out, kid, and, and he is so discouraged. Well, through all the ups and downs, in the end, here's the spoiler alert, yes, he gets his BB gun. The, the whole story is wondering whether he'll get it, and he does indeed receive his favorite Christmas present. But you should watch the movie, because it's a sweet one. Now, I have a, a question. How many of you have watched this movie as your, your Christmas movie? How many of you have watched the original first Star Wars as, as one of your Christmas movies this year. Maybe one. <laughs> uh, I, I would suggest to you this odd thing this morning. The first Star Wars, you know, with Luke Skywalker and old Ben Kenobi and all, I think it's actually closer to being a Christmas movie than the one called A Christmas Story. And here's why. In, in Star Wars, A New Hope, we meet Luke Skywalker He's a young man who's grown up on a rural planet. And, and while he has this possible career as a farmer, he longs for something more. And through this series of unlikely events, he meets uh, an old man named Ben Kenobi. And, and Ben gives him a very special present. It's, it's not a BB gun, and it's not, uh, you know, a, a certain thing wrapped under a tree. It's a lightsaber, a special weapon that, uh, if trained in rightly, Luke can learn to use to help save the galaxy. And I would suggest to you that these two stories, they have similarities, right? One, they both involve presence. They also uh, involve young men who, you know, this present becomes a pivotal point in their life. But a Christmas story is, is sweet and fun, and, and it's, it's lighthearted, it's homesy. On the other hand, Star Wars is dangerous, it's adventurous, it's epic. And, and my suggestion this morning as we take another look at Matthew 2, I think we're going to see that the real Christmas story is, is maybe more dangerous than a Christmas story. It's, it's more like Star Wars. We're going to see, I think, that this story that 
uh, we're going to read has danger. It has a young man. He's going to receive presents. And we're going to find that there are some intent on destroying him. If you've been with us over the last few weeks as we began the Gospel of Matthew, I, I suggested that this is really a, a hero's story, the hero being Jesus. So it is like getting Jesus' biography from the perspective of Matthew. And we, we saw that the lineage of Jesus included two men who were very important. One was David, showing us that Jesus would be the rightful king. And two was Abraham, showing us that Jesus would fulfill the promise to bless the world. And then last week we looked and we saw exactly how it was that his birth came about. This incredible announcement where God worked to make Jesus come uh, through his mother Mary but also be born the son of God. And God had to at the same time help this young man Joseph who could not believe that his fiance got pregnant miraculously until an angel revealed to him that was the case and Joseph became the legal or adopted father of Jesus. So as we read this morning, listen for these things. Listen for a hiss and watch for a hand and listen for a certain sound. Because this is God's word, I invite you to stand just like they did in the days of Ezra in honor of the reading of God's word. And I'm going to read in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. God's word tells us, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask right now for the insight and the hearts to receive this as a word from you. God, we, we don't want to just be uh, entertained or we don't want to just learn something fascinating this morning. We want to be changed and we want to worship you as you are and, and we cannot muster that up in ourselves, but you, Holy Spirit, you can direct us to Jesus. God, use this time to get what your word should produce and that is worshipers of the King. We ask this, Jesus, please, in your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, first, I think we're going to hear a hiss from an enemy. You see, the first hint that this is maybe more like Star Wars and less like a Christmas story comes in the words in verse 1 that says, In the days of Herod the king. Another movie my kids like and a book series that is just so fun to read with them is C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. 
And, and there's this moment in the movie Prince Caspian when the kids come to this magical land and, and they meet a bear and they think this is going to be so fun because they're used to being able to talk to the animals and it's this sweet time. And the bear doesn't understand a word they're saying. The bear comes at them to kill them. And it's a little dwarf who has to shoot and kill the bear to save the children's lives. And he gives them this warning. He says, I think you may find Narnia a more savage place than you remember. Well, this morning, I think you may find the Christmas story a more savage story than you remember. And here's why. Let me tell you a little bit about Herod. Herod was two things. He was wicked and he was brilliant, which in terms of an enemy is the worst combination you can get. Herod had a difficult early political career because the land of Judea, the land of Palestine, was in turmoil. He had to uh, scrape and claw and beg his way to the throne. There was one point where a political rival had trapped his family in a fortress named Masada and Herod had to go beg for deliverance from Rome. And when he gets back, he gets back just in time to save his family with a Roman army. And, and, and this leaves something of an impression on Herod's life because his rule is characterized by two things and that is political savvy and savage violence. You see, Herod will come to the Judean throne with the blessing of Rome in about 37 BC and immediately has his rival executed. But it doesn't stop from there. You see, Herod has this problem. His father, Antipater, is, is not a Jew. He is from Edom. And that's what it means when you'll hear sometimes Herod the Idumean. Uh, that just means he is of the descendant of Esau. And so Herod, throughout his reign, is accused of being an illegitimate king. He is not a Jew. So what does he do? Well, when he comes to his throne, he identifies 40 of the wealthiest Jews there in Jerusalem and has them executed and then takes their wealth and their land for his own. And instantly, Herod is a wealthy king. But it doesn't stop there. His rival, who he had executed, he has both the political savvy and audacity to marry his niece, a woman named Mariamme. And it kind of secures for him the in he needs with some of the Jewish leaders. But he, on one of his trips to kind of beg the assistance of Rome, he suspects her of maybe cheating on him. So what does he do? He has her killed as well. Kills his wife, Mariamme. Well, then Rome goes through a civil war. If you remember your world history, Octavius on one side, Antony and Cleopatra on the other, and Herod had kind of sided with Antony. But what happens in the civil war? Well, Antony and Cleopatra lose. So what does Herod do? Like a very sly snake, he slithers back up to Rome and convinces Octavius that he was really on his side the whole time and that Octavius should leave him the king in Judea. What else does Herod do? Well, let's talk about Herod's family life. Herod has three different sons at different points in his life that he suspects of maybe working against him. And he has all three of them imprisoned until he gets permission from Rome to have them executed. A wife, three sons killed because of Herod's paranoia and manipulation. But he's also manipulatable. And here's the, the just terrible thing about it. His sister one day wants to be able to divorce her husband. And so she sides up to Herod and convinces him that her, Herod's brother-in-law, his sister's husband, has been maneuvering against him. So Herod has him killed as well, all to satisfy his sister's need for a divorce. I mean, this is the stuff that like e even, uh, you know, a daytime TV show. I mean, I, I think even Dr. Phil would struggle with his family, you know. It just gets worse and worse and worse. But I told you he's also brilliant. He was tutored in Greek philosophy and in war. 
He was a man of engineering talents. Some remember him for rebuilding the temple. He also rebuilt and and brought many aspects of Greek culture to Judea like uh, coliseums or or places where the games could be held. He brought racetracks and theaters and this angered the Jews even more. So I say this to say what we meet in Herod is someone who's a lot like a snake. He knows how to slither around uh, as a political, you know, pundit. And then he also knows how to strike or to bite when his reign is uh, in jeopardy. And Herod reminds us that Jesus is opposed by another snake. You see... Herod being both ruthless and brilliant and using words of cunning reminds us of another snake in the Bible. Look with me back in verse 8 of Matthew 2. This is what the Bible had said about Herod. He convinces the wise men to come to him and secretly convinces them to tell him all that they've learned. And then he sends them out with these words, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, if the kids were in here, I'd ask them at this point, what do you think? Is Herod telling the truth? And and some of them may say, I don't know. Some of them may go, no, right? These words are not to be trusted. There's, There's like a little hiss behind these words. If you don't know this story, I'll tell you, you shouldn't trust a word that comes out of King Herod's mouth. He has no intent whatsoever to worship Jesus. He's intending something far worse. And so this slithering and this hissing reminds us of a story that happened way back in Genesis 3. When Eve and Adam were in the garden and a snake slithered up to Eve and said, hey, can't you eat from any tree in the garden? Uh, did, Did God really say, oh, you will not surely die. He knows that you will be like God. It's the same hissing and lying words that come from Herod's mouth as came from the snake's mouth. And and here's why I think we meet him. God wants us to know something very true about this. When he sends his son into the world, this isn't a a gentle and tame and happy-go-lucky kind of story. This is a dangerous thing. Jesus is going to be opposed by Satan. And we're going to see Satan trying to do the same thing he tried to do way back in Genesis. We're going to see him trying to end the effort of God to claim a people for himself, a people who would worship God. Throughout the gospel, Satan over and over again is going to oppose the Messiah, going to oppose the true king who's come to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to announce peace that all may come and become worshipers of God. Now, Christian, you've probably heard this. If you're somewhat new, you may not know this, but your life, just like Jesus's, you have a real enemy. There is danger in your life because this person, this creature, this enemy called Satan, he's not made up. It's not just like uh, Darth Vader or, or we're going to meet Grand Admiral Thrawn soon in Star Wars. He's not a made up enemy like the boogeyman to scare kids. He's real. And one of his greatest weapons against us today is to convince us he doesn't exist, that he's the abominable snowman, just something made up to scare children. In 1652, a pastor in London named Thomas Brooks wrote a little book for his congregation called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And I want to just share real quick some practical wisdom for you, Christian or non, to help you in your fight. These are things that you need to know about our enemy. First, Satan adjusts the bait to lure you to bite the hook. You see, for Herod, even his sister knew that if she could just convince him that there was a threat to his power, he would bite that hook, even if it meant having his brother-in-law 
uh, executed. It was no big deal if it came to the fact that Herod's reign might be under uh, attack. That was the bait that always convinced Herod to bite. Just like luring a fish to bite a hook, Satan knows that different people are, will respond to different bait. He knows what it takes. And so here's, here's what it is. Christian, if you know there's an area of life that you're weak in, you need to be very careful because Satan knows what bait it'll take to convince you to bite from that hook of sin. You need to, to steer clear of those areas of temptation. Don't even go near it. Let's say, you know, this Christmas, you know that for you, alcohol is a big temptation. I'm telling you, don't go around that liquor store. Don't, don't go down the liquor aisle. Don't, don't go to the party if you know that they're going to say, hey, would you like a drink? It's, it's not worth it. It's, it's too much of a lure. There's too big of a chance that you're going to be tempted and bite from that hook. Let's say you're a young man or a young woman, and, and for you, it's the temptation to look at things online that you know are not God-honoring. That, that pornography just has this it, it, alluring attraction for you and you don't uh, want to bite. Well, well, having something that has unfiltered access to the internet, that's the same thing. Don't go there. Don't put that temptation before you. You might even need for a while, not just to have accountability software, but to get rid of those devices, to, to not have a smartphone for a while so that you don't go near that bait. Maybe for you, it's, it's just overeating or what the Bible calls gluttony. And, and for you, it's just certain foods are put out in front of you and you really can't stop. Don't go there. Don't just find yourself at Dunkin' Donuts. It just happens that you be there. Drive a different way. The, the point is, Satan knows how to lure us to bite that hook. Don't put yourself in that temptation. Satan also knows how to yank on that hook to sink it in deep. This is what he likes to do. He likes to convince us to, to, you know, just take a little nibble of that sin. As if we could just take a nibble and be done. But that's not how it works, right? Take a nibble and you want more and more and more. And each time, it doesn't quite give you the same pleasure it did before. So that one time when you bite deep in, he can yank hard on that hook and you're hooked. You'll go to that same sin over and over and over. And here's what happens, right? Uh, you, you, before you know it, you've, you've started to make compromises. Well, <sighs> church is so early. I don't know that I need to get up and go there. Or, oh, I don't really feel like reading my Bible this morning. Or, I don't want to talk to those Christian friends. I always feel a little convicted when I'm around them. You see, he's good at that. He will yank hard to get you hooked. Not only should you not go around temptation, but when you do bite from the hook, right then and there, you need to go back to Jesus. You need to trust that if you confess your sins to Jesus, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Go to Christian friends and ask them for help. It'll be the hardest conversation you ever have telling another Christian that you are struggling in sin and it'll be the best because that's what it'll take for someone to help pull that hook out of your mouth. You're going to need help getting unhooked. And finally, Satan doesn't only put different bait on there. He doesn't only yank on that hook to sink it in deep. But he's going to reel you in. And he's going to try to put you in a dark place. You see, the name Satan means the accuser. And this is the one, two that he pulls on us. He's going to say, hey, hey, come on, come on, come on. Come on, come on, bite this hook, bite this hook, bite this hook. Come on, come on, come on, take a bite, take a bite, take a bite. And then when we do... And he's got his hook. He turns around like a sly snake and he says, look at this one, God. This one took such a bite. They're a wicked sinner. You, you should have nothing to do with them. And he's going to say things in your mind that are all lies. God is so upset with you, he'll tell you. You couldn't possibly be forgiven. Tell you what, you might as well just sin and enjoy it as much as you can in this life because there's no hope for you. You are beyond saving. He'll say something like that. He, he might even try to get you so dark that where he convinced you, you know what? The best thing for you is just to end it right now. Come on, come on, do it. Just end it. It'll be so much better. Just be done. That's the hiss of a snake. That is not the voice of God. Don't 
listen to it. This morning, if you've been hearing voices like that, I want you to stop listening to those voices. And I want you to run to Jesus. Right now, pray and ask Jesus to speak to you and plug your ears to the hiss of that snake. In meeting Herod, we meet a snake-like enemy that reminds us that the enemy's real and he wants to prevent you from worshiping Jesus. But then we find that Satan is not the only one in this story. We're going to see a hand. It's the invisible hand of God at work. Look with me back in verse 1. Matthew uses a word here, and it's, it's wonderful how he does this. He uses one word, and it is behold. And then look with me down in verse 9. See the same word again. The word is behold. You see, when Matthew writes his gospel, it's not like today where he can, you know, get out a yellow highlighter or, or a pen and circle it. It's not like he, he can, you know, say, hey, 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 wake up. This is very important. So he chooses a word to do that. And the word is behold. Uh, R.C. Sproul used to say in this, it's as if Matthew put a sentinel in the text and he says, stop and listen. Whatever comes next is very important. You see, Matthew wants us not to miss that even though in this passage, God and even Jesus by name are not mentioned, God is all over the place in what he is doing. In, in verses 1 and 2, we see that God has appointed this star to guide certain people to the place they need to be. And in verses 9 through 11, we see that he's mysteriously guiding them by the same star to the very house where Jesus is. And then in verse 12, we're going to see that not only does he guide them there, but he guides them safely back home, outwitting Herod. So three times there is an invisible hand guiding the circumstances to get things just right to where people are worshiping Jesus. And that's the point for us today. We do have an enemy. Satan is real, but God is also real. And he is at work like that invisible hand making sure that his son will be worshiped. Look with me at this star for just a minute. Now, here's the thing. We don't know exactly what this star is. Some people will tell you it's one star. Some people will tell you it's a constellation. Some people will tell you it's a planet. Some people will tell you it's a comet or a meteoroid. Uh, or meteorite, excuse me. We, uh, we don't know. Uh, it could be an angel. But something happened in that sky such that some men who were familiar with astronomy knew Something unique had occurred. And it was so mysterious and profound that this cosmic event guided them to Judea, telling them that a special king had been born. Now, you think about that. Like, I, if I go out in this, um, tonight and I look up in the sky and I see something interesting, I might go, well, that's fascinating. Somebody who knows a little bit more might say, well, that, that's Jupiter. But, but for somebody to say, you know what? I think halfway across the world, a special child has been born who's going to be king. I mean, that's a big leap, right? That, that is huge that they go from here to there. This, this takes the hand of God. These men had to be familiar to a degree with some of the Jewish scriptures, and there had to be a hand moving in such a way that this star would tell them that. Now, even if it was a normal star, which I don't think it is, Try this on. It, it goes from just being a special star to where the star moves from where it is to where it rests just over the right house for them to see Jesus. Now, uh, there is no star in the world that just goes right here. You know, th th this is something supernatural occurring. This is not normal. This is why I tend to think that this was an angel who held his post faithfully for about nine months, uh, maybe longer, until he guides them to just the right spot. 
Jesus in the home. We don't know exactly how long it took for the wise men to get there, but given everything that's happened and given the fact that Mary and Joseph are in a house, this could be over a year, and they could be meeting Jesus as a toddler. I tend to think that God sovereignly guided them to just the right spot to bring them to his son. And then how about this? Look at the very last verse in our passage, verse 12. It says that they were warned in a dream. And then they departed. Now, I tend to think that this means all of them. And we haven't even got yet how many of them there are. But at least, if not more than three different men have basically the same dream on the same night telling them not to go back to that king in Jerusalem. Now, now, if you're like me, Megan and I, my wife, we like to talk about our dreams because they're funny, right? And, and you wake up in the morning and almost right away, you start forgetting them. What, what was that dream? Oh man, it's slipping from my mind. I can't even remember what it was. I just know that I was at my old school and I failed the test or whatever. You know, I couldn't find the classroom. That's one of my repeating things. I, I've, I've had dreams that I leave to come to this church. I just can't even find it. Y'all have moved somewhere. I don't know where it is. Uh, so those are typically my dream. But we don't ever have the same dream. And we don't ever have the same dream that we wake up with a strong impression telling us not to go through a certain city that we were planning to go to. Multiple men, same dream, telling them not to go to the same place. This doesn't happen. That's because there is a hand at work behind the scenes, the hand of God. I want you to know something, and that is that the same hand that worked in this story is still at work today. God, the one who made everything, made the air that you're breathing right now, is still at work sovereignly guiding your life. You weren't born an accident. It wasn't just a fluke that you live where you are. It's not for no reason that you find yourself here in a church. Later in the gospel, Jesus is going to share this incredible truth with us. And it's this truth that while God has his hand like this, wanting everyone to come to him, he is also the hand over here sovereignly guiding to bring some to salvation. Listen to this out of Matthew 11. Jesus will say, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So here is this mystery. There is apparently this free invitation for everyone to come. And then there is this sovereign hand behind the scenes working out aspects of your life, even of your own heart, to where you will trust in Jesus. So that when someone comes and gives their life to Christ, we have witnessed a miracle. God has changed a heart and someone has responded in faith. Christian, you're going to interact, I hope, with some family members over the next few uh, days and weeks. This week at Christmas, I hope that you interact with some family members and some may not know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. I want you to get from this that it's so important not to give up praying for them. You're asking God to move his sovereign hand and to draw them to his son. And then I want you to be willing to lovingly and compassionately say with Jesus, come on, give your heart to Christ. Would you do that? Would you pray for them? And would you lovingly tell them there's a God who sent his son because he loves them? Now, if you're discouraged, hear this. I don't know all the aspects in your life, but I know God's not done with you. You know why? Because you're breathing and you're here. And the same God who's given you breath for years is working. He's not done with you. Don't give up on him. Trust him. He is at work. I have benefited in studying for this series by Pastor David Platt. And this is what he says about this passage regarding God's amazing control. 
The God who 2,000 years ago sovereignly arranged the stars in the sky, the God who sovereignly directed these magi to the Messiah is the God who has sovereignly arranged your life and every detail in it, your family, your job, your school, your background, and your relationships. There's a hand of God still at work. Well, last, we're going to hear the sound of worship. The sound of worship. These wise men from the east, we sing songs about them, right? Uh, we three kings of Orient are. Uh, we, we, there are so many stories that revolve around them. And the fact of the matter is, we really don't know a whole lot about these guys. Almost certainly they weren't kings. Sorry if that ruins the song. I apologize. Um, almost certainly there weren't three of them. The, the only reason some have thought there were three is because three gifts were given. It's far more likely that there were more than three. Uh, there's a tradition that says there were 12. At the end of the day, we don't know. We also don't know their names. The tradition will suggest Gaspar and Melchior and Balthazar. We, we have no idea what their names are. We don't even know their profession the, the word magi, where we get the word, say, magic or magician, uh, doesn't mean that they were necessarily uh, pagan sorcerers or even paid astrologers. They knew how to discern stars in the sky, so they knew astronomy, but it wasn't uncommon in that day for learned men to learn something of the stars. So we don't know. We don't know how many there are. We don't know. We don't even know where they're from. Matthew doesn't tell us, oh, by the way, they're from Babylon. Oh, by the way, they're from Persia. He just says, they're from the east. Last time I checked on the globe, there's a lot east of Jerusalem. You know, we, but here's what we know. These were wealthy, educated men who were not from Israel, who came a long way to worship Jesus. And that's the point. Here's what, the, the whole point of not diving into the details is so that there'd be a little bit of mystery surrounding these men. And all we'd know is that there are foreigners being drawn to worship Jesus. That's the whole point. If we look at the scripture that is being fulfilled here, we get exactly what we need to know. Look back in Matthew 2, one last time here, at Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. It says in that passage, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That is a direct quotation from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And here's what you need to know is going on in Micah. Micah is a prophet who is sent in the Old Testament with a word of judgment for both Israel and Judah. And the word of judgment is this, you all in Israel and in Judah love your money, you're so greedy, you're defrauding each other so much, you've allowed in the worship of foreign gods, you priests and you prophets are corrupt, you don't perform church services unless somebody pays you, you'll tell people whatever they want to hear as long as they're wealthy and give you money, God is going to judge you, God is going to remove you from his land, but God will then restore you. Because his love for you is so fierce. Here is the prophecy from Micah. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The religious leaders in Jesus' day knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem because David was born in Bethlehem. Remember, he was a shepherd working for his dad when he got anointed to be the king of Israel. And, and that is why Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, the descendant of David in the same place because he would assume this throne. Bethlehem was just a little south of Jerusalem, about five miles. Uh, and what's so fascinating is that we see both Herod and the religious leaders aware now 
where the Messiah will be from, from Bethlehem. And Herod is going to try to do something about it, but it's not going to be to worship him. We're going to find this this snake-like king coiling up, as it were, to strike. And that's what we'll see next week. But the religious leaders, this is sad. They know their Bibles. They know that Jesus is going to be born in, in Bethlehem. They've got their theology right. And they do nothing. They do nothing. They've had wise men come and say, we've seen a star. He's here. We're going to go find him. And they do nothing. What a warning to, to know more than just the right answer to give at church, but to be moved. But there are those in this story who have discerned the times. They, they know what's happening. They, they hear what the prophet says and they go. And, and they're guided to just the right spot and, and they respond the way we're supposed to respond. They, they do three things to show that they're worshiping Jesus. Look with me in verse 10 and 11. It says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They fell down and they worshiped him. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. God is fulfilling a promise here. A promise to bring all the nations one day to worship his son. It's a promise that won't come to completion until Jesus returns. And we look around, those of us who are Christians, and we say, hey, there's somebody from China. There's somebody from India. There's somebody from the Incas, all worshiping Jesus. Right here on the the time that we worship at Christmas, we see in this story with all the peril going on that this hand is guiding some foreign men to begin to fulfill the worship of the nations of Jesus. This is also a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. Listen to how specific it gets. This prophecy came at least 700 years before this event occurs. Listen to these words. It says in Isaiah chapter 60, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. The exact same gifts are being fulfilled 700 years later by some foreign men to worship God's son. And so, what does it mean for us? What do we respond? What do we do with this? I'm so convicted that so often times I come to the Bible just to go, wow, that's neat. Well, that's cool. I didn't know that. Like, like, like it was my job to read the Bible about like we watch the Discovery Channel or something, you know? Go, oh, that's fascinating. That's interesting. No, I mean, I mean, don't stop there. Yes, it's cool. Yes, it's fascinating. Yes, it's interesting. God wants your heart. He wants your whole life. He wants you to worship his son. And that's what these wise men give us is three ways to worship Jesus. The first is simply this. Worship Jesus with joy. Worship Jesus with joy. The ESV does an excellent job translating the Greek in verse 10 when it says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's, it's twice, you know, uh, rejoicing with mega and joy mega. You know, if we were getting super literal, it'd be like loud mega joy with mega joy. You know, <laughs> uh, super the duper joy. How about that? I don't know exactly what it looked like for these wealthy men, but I imagine the ancient version of chest bumping and touchdown dancing, right? They, they, there he is! They're going nuts! They, they, this is the one they've been uh, looking for, and then the star goes to the right place. Can you believe it? I mean, this is not a dignified thing. This is high fives and, and hitting each other. Maybe one got, you know, chest bumped so hard he's on the ground. I, I mean, they are so excited. This is where we get the sound of worship. And Christian, I find there's this sad tendency in us sometimes, the longer we walk with Christ, to to where our worship just becomes so boring, so like tame. And and, I mean, we sing about the God who loves us, who came to the earth, who, who died on the cross for our sins, and we're like, yay, Jesus. I mean, what, what are we doing here? You know, come on, guys. We're, we're worshiping the Messiah. We need to learn a lesson from these foreigners who come 
ecstatic. Here's the good news. When you become a Christian, you have every reason to be the happiest person on planet earth. God loves you and you're going to spend eternity with him. That's reason to worship. But, but it doesn't stop there. They're not just super happy and like, hey, there's the house. It's so cool. All right, peace. We're out of here. Right? They, they do something about it. It says they go in and they fall down. Again, wealthy, renowned men get, getting down on their knees, going before a toddler right? This is undignified. This is humbling. This is exactly the way we should come before a king. He is the king. We are not. We are blessed to be his servants, those who come and fall down. Be careful that our familiarity with Christmas robs us of reverence, of, of just being so overwhelmed by the majesty and holiness of God to where we go, wow, here we are, King Jesus. They fell down. And then they offered him gifts. Kids love this, right? It's not that Santa or St. Nicholas invented gift giving. I'm glad they're not here so I don't like spoil it for any kid. Um, but the, the, the uh, you know, idea of giving gifts at Christmas comes from here, comes from the Magi, the wise men. And really the first gift giver would be God the Father giving the gift of his son. But they establish the precedent of Christmas presents. And why? What are they doing? The, the, the worship doesn't stop with just their heart, the joy, or, or their head knowing that Jesus is king, it, it goes to their hands. They are so overwhelmed that they're moved to physically and tangibly give gifts to Jesus. Costly gifts. Expensive gifts. Because he's worth it. Now, Christian, this is not a message about uh, giving to your local church. Uh, but, but I do want us to hear this here. The money that we have, it's not ours. The, the money that they had, it wasn't theirs. The wealth, the time, the talents, they're all given to us by God to bring glory to his son. You may be the type that you've had a, a rough financial year. I understand. But what has been entrusted to you is a stewardship. Find some way to worship Jesus by giving a gift. You can give at this local church, sure, but I want you to be moved to give generously somehow this Christmas. Don't, don't let it go by and it be just about, okay, I gotta get the kids enough gifts or they will tell their friends at school that I'm a lame parent and I don't want that. Like, yeah, okay, give gifts to, you know, to, to one another, but, but go beyond that. Think of what is some way I can really worship Jesus by giving a gift. Again, Maybe it's through your local church. Uh, Pastor Wesley will share about a few opportunities, but I want you to have that worship opportunity to give a gift. Earlier, I suggested that this story was going to be a lot more like Star Wars than a Christmas story. And, and if you know your Star Wars, uh, Luke Skywalker, while he's away with Ben Kenobi, something happens, and it's a turning point. Stormtroopers show up at his house and murder his family, but he's spared. And it's that violence that propels Luke into the story in which he will save the galaxy. We're going to see the exact same thing. Next week, it's going to be an act of violence where innocents are murdered that's going to show us the kind of peril this story is in but it's going to propel the real hero, Jesus, into the fight. It's going to propel Jesus to do what only he could do. You see, all of us have a problem, and that problem is we have sinned, and we will stand and give an account before a holy God. So Jesus comes to fight a battle we can't win, and that is, as the holy Son of God who never commits sin, he comes to take the punishment for our sin on the cross and to give us his righteousness. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, but if you are someone who showed up this morning, you've never taken the step to trust 
Jesus to forgive your sins. There's no magic around it. You are going to pray and ask him to forgive you and commit to follow him as your savior. That's it. I'm not a priest. There's, there's no one here who does it for you. It's between you and God. It's a prayer in which you say, God, I want to respond like the wise men. Please forgive me of my sins. And please, Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. And I commit to follow you with all that I am. That's it. That's it. And then you receive the gift of Jesus this Christmas. Let's pray. And, and, and Christian, Whatever God's put on your heart, spend just a minute or two with him in prayer, asking him to do what he has put on your heart to do. And then Pastor Wesley will come and close us out. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that Jesus, you're, you're just not done with us. You're, you're the one who came and you lived and then you died, and then you rose, and then you ascended. I, I thank you that, Jesus, you're, you're not the, the king who, you know, comes and stays so far away from us that we, we just don't have hope. You, you, you came, and you got into this mess with us, and you, you uh, did it in such a way that you would be like us, but not like us. You're like us in every way that you're human, but you're not like us, and that you didn't sin. You, you are not like us, and that you deserve worship, and that you move sovereignly so that you would be worshiped, and that the snake wouldn't win, and that we would be forgiven. God, I pray right now that if there's someone who is here and they don't yet know you as Lord and Savior, that you'd move their heart sovereignly and give them that gift. Move them in such a way that they know they're loved, that they would trust you, that they confess their sins to you, they would follow you. And God, I pray for the Christians here, please, Jesus, move us we're your people. We, we, by your grace, we have been saved. By your grace, we have been forgiven. And, and so many of us have just been discouraged or distracted or, or whatever else it is. We just need you. We need some hope. Jesus, renew us. Rekindle us. Give us that joy again here at Christmas. Let this be a time where, where we're just filled up with amazement at you, Jesus, where the snake is sent running and where we are... Um, almost recommissioned, as it were, to walk with you. I pray, God, that from hearing again this incredible story of foreigners being brought to worship Jesus, that we would be renewed in our zeal, not just to thank you, but to tell others about you. Jesus, we, we could tell everybody that we're blue in the face, but if you, Holy Spirit, don't move, it would be for nothing. But I believe you are moving. I believe you, you are still at work bringing the lost to you. Please move and please allow us to be part of that and make us generous. God, we know that you've entrusted us with money, not just so that we would have money for ourselves, but that we could be a blessing to the world. Let us do that. Let us be generous with the finances you've entrusted to us, just like the wise men were. God, I, 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 I need this message. I, I need you to help me and my family to celebrate Christmas well, a story that is true, filled with both hope and with peril. Don't let me go through a Christmas just kind of going through the motions. I pray for this church that, Lord, you'd have your way with us and, and that we would just be filled with joy this Christmas. And I pray for this community. God, we need you so much, Holy Spirit, to come and let the name of Jesus be sung loudly by white-hot worshipers. I pray this, Jesus, please, in your name. Amen.